Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other than one of my friends, I'm just trying to help you make some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Next year at this time, next year, I need you to remember something. About a month before this moment, we will hear a bit of the most expensive dog roll anyone can utter. Sell in May and go away. So I need you to remember that we just had an amazing May. One of the best Mays ever. One of the best months ever. Leading to a tremendous run right into June. While we pull back today, Dow dipping 200 points, S&P declining 0.2%, Nasdaq edging 0.09% down. We can't ignore the lessons of this incredible May. The biggest lesson being sometimes maybe you need to take some pain to get the big gain. First, because of last month's rally, the Nasdaq's now on pace for its best first half since 1991. That's incredible. It's being led by what I call the Magnificent Seven, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Meta, Microsoft, Tesla, and of course, NVIDIA, which has had one of the most phenomenal concise runs I've ever seen. Now, all these moves, all seven, were driven by company ingenuity, not actions by the federal government or the Federal Reserve whose moves managers obsess on, thereby missing the big picture. Each one of these moves has a story to tell. For example, Apple sold off a bit today, as it almost always does after it rallies into the Worldwide Developers Conference. That's an annual event that's like a celebration of all things Apple and Apple-related. Today, we got a glimpse of a special augmented reality headset that's priced at $3,500. I thought that was pricey, but the stock barely went down. It was up a little bit beforehand. I think this is a high price point. Now, I, I don't exactly see all the appeal, but most of the younger people in the office went nuts for the presentation. You know me, I'm a numbers guy. I didn't get what I wanted today. It's not what it's for. I much prefer Apple highlight other good things like a pickup in their services business for the third straight month. Morgan Stanley, thank you. Or it's growing geographic reach with lots of new sales coming from Brazil, the Philippines, Indonesia, and of course, India. These relatively new markets could increase Apple's core user base from $2 billion to $3 billion. They may, the, may be the best expression of what's to come. You know, my view on Apple hasn't changed. Own it, don't trade it. As for Amazon, I've been hard on these guys, thinking they hired way too many people during the pandemic and weren't about making aggressive cutbacks. Now, though, after two rounds of layoffs, totaling 27,000 people, including many in the company's headquarters staff, and those are expensive people, Amazon just put out a 37-project kill list, which is great news as they did have a lot of expensive loss-making projects. I think the cost will come down at the same time the consumer's desire to shop in person post-pandemic is finally waning. We know that. It's simply way more convenient, often cheaper, to get everything you need from AutoShip from Amazon Prime. I was also concerned that Alphabet had missed the boat, particularly in artificial intelligence, but I was wrong. 
It had more in the space than I thought, and that could be enough to keep the engine going. Meta has embraced efficiency like no other. As Mark Chainsaw Zuckerberg realized, his company was spending too much money on too many different projects that weren't paying off. Now they're focused on taking business from TikTok with Reels while improving Instagram and more or less getting around Apple's privacy rules that hurt targeted advertising. Now, it's still spending on Meta platforms, and I'm sure some of the hundreds of millions it's spending with NVIDIA could have a huge payoff there. I have to tell you, I thought that Apple's presentation day was much better than anything I've seen from the Meta platform so far. How about Tesla? I don't have much to say here, except the stock seems depressed after Elon Musk bought Twitter. But that's now over with. Plus, David Faber's excellent interview with Musk makes you feel like he has a plan for world domination. I'd be kicking myself if I hadn't started pushing it again 70 points ago. And, of course, there is NVIDIA, which has been working with accelerated computing and generative artificial intelligence to the point where CEO Jensen Wong can explain how these two trends have coalesced to change computing forever in just a couple of hours. i got to tell you, that couple-of-hour presentation is a must-watch. Just go, to no, just go, really, to NVIDIA.com. It pops right up. I'm blown away, as you'd be, if you watch how everything's going GPU, not CPU. Think Intel. A shift that's making artificial intelligence far more powerful. It's all pretty unbelievable. Potential outmode all tech that's come before. Hence the iPhone moment that Jensen alludes to repeatedly. We were fortunate enough for the travel trust to get into all these except Tesla. So now what do we do? We're telling members of the CBC Investing Club that we don't want to overstay our welcome. I think we've experienced one of the greatest runs in history, and those tend not to happen twice in a row, just once. That's why we're choosing to lighten up where we can for the trust, especially in tech, because we don't want to give back any of these big gains. I don't like to do these things in a vacuum. I want to rely on history so that I'm not off base in my own analysis. You know what I do when I have to do that? I turn to my friend Larry Williams. He's the best market historian I know, who's been the dean of technical analysis since I was a teenager. Great recent track record, too. Williams has done some amazing work showing that while we're still in a bull market, and that's definite, we're still in a bull market, his cycle work suggests that we're going to be in a bit of a tougher run here. To quote him, and you can see where we are, stock prices bob and weave like a prize fighter. While I expect the breakout that killed the bears last week to continue a bit, and that's that spike up, uh, more traders should be prepared for a pullback uh, to begin. And that means right here is when you're going to start seeing a decline. Now, look, look at his cycle work. It suggests we're headed for weakness in the middle of June. That makes sense to me. I believe the Fed will choose not to raise rates when it meets next week. But you know what that's going to do? It's going to put an immense amount of pressure on every single data point once we're past the meeting. And I think every stronger number will cause a decline. Then the bears, many of them uber-rich hedge fund managers who missed this move entirely, as well as an endlessly bearish analyst with a lot of followers, will come on air and bloviate about how you won't make any money in stocks. Never mind that we're already up 20% from the bottom right now. Rather than wait for the cyclical weakness coming up, I lighten up ahead of time, which is what we're doing right here for the trust, okay? Uh, and I made that very clear, both in our morning meeting and in our home stretch broadcast. If you remember the club, you'd catch these, and I think you'd really enjoy them. Now, I know, as my friend and colleague David Costin from Goldman Sachs put this weekend in his invaluable kickstart document, we have, and I'm going to quote, narrow breath, mega cap, and AI-driven tech rally, end quote. That, he says, has, quote, lifted the S&P 500 by 12% to a year to date to a high of 42.82, end quote. Last Thursday, a new phase began, a broadening out of the, of the breath to include some cyclicals and even some financials. There are plenty of people out there who think that this is what we've been waiting for, that this is good news. These people are blind to the fact that we just had what we were waiting for, replete with the crowning of a brand new mega cap, NVIDIA. We don't want to overstay our welcome as the market broadens. We want to take some profits and set up for the next wave of the cycle, which is down but not out. If you sell some here, you can leg in in this area. 
And that's what I want to do. Now, a word on my work, okay? So often, if you watch the show, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you know chapter and verse, how I speak and what I speak. And I speak very, flat, very plainly, like nobody else on TV or anybody else on Wall Street. But if you read a summary of what I have to say, it will be distilled into something that often I didn't mean or say. I used to care a great deal about this, but in my 18th year of the show, I can no longer worry about those who read the summaries. You heard what I said. We made a killing. I don't want to give a lot of it back, so I'm taking some profits for the Travel Trust. William Sickle will take icy on the cake. Bottom line, unless you're terminally greedy or totally brain dead, you've got to take some profits when you have them. This is not the time to double down. It's the time to ring the register on some of your gains. And remember next year to buy in May and take some profits in June. Let's go to Mitch in Arizona, please. Mitch. Hey, Jim. The name of the company is called Dexcom. Are you a buyer, seller, or do I hold? I think the Dexcom uh, device is, is miraculous, and I am a buyer and have been a buyer for, I'd say, probably close to 100 points, and I'm not backing away right now. How about Dave in Virginia, please, Dave? Hi, Jim. It's Dave Miller from Richmond, Virginia. Thank you for calling, Dave. Sure. Uh, Third-time caller, long-time listener, back to the Cudlow and Kramer days. Wow, talking more than 20 years. Thanks for everything you do. You've helped me comfortably retire this year. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's just great. Thank you. Jim, back in late April, I sold half my position in ExxonMobil, about a 40% gain. And obviously, in the last five or six weeks, we've seen what's happened to to the oil stocks. So I'm looking to get back in, and my question... No, I don't want you to do that. Um, oh. I think that... You, no, because I thought, as I said this morning uh, on Squawk on the Street, fade the oil move. I didn't believe it. What matters is that the Russians and the Americans are pumping, not the Saudis. I do not see a lot of upside in oil. I myself was regretful that we were not able to sell some of our oils uh, earlier today. Do not touch the oils. They're going lower. Let's go to Peter in California, please. Peter. Jim, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Quite welcome. Uh, I've held this stock for a while. It's been up and down. Boeing, what do you think? I think that Boeing is going to get it together. There's just too much travel demand for me to believe that the stock can't go higher. However, it has got so many different problems that it tends not to go up in a straight line. So I need you to be patient with Boeing, but I think because of long-term travel demand, it will be strong. All right, listen to me. Forget the phrase, sell a man, go away. I think you should remember to buy in May and take some profits in June. On May Money tonight, we've got a strong May and June's looking to continue. But I'm digging into the big rally Friday and see what got it going. Don't don't share the idea that it's going to keep going. Then five below deserves five stars after earnings. So what changed the story? I'm breaking down the quarter to give you my take. And the ad market continues to innovate with continued advancements in AI and streaming. Where does the trade desk, a real winner, fit in? I'm checking in with the CEO, so stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match 
with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I want to talk about last Friday's incredible run, because I don't think people appreciate what made this move so special, especially after today's round of profit-taking that obscures what went on. And they don't seem to understand what caused the rally. You heard so much about that Goldilocks employment report, but I think it's mostly about the final passage of the debt ceiling deal. For most of the debt ceiling pseudo-crisis, it seemed like this time would be worse than the last time. That was 2011. Both parties were way more intractable this time around. You had no idea if the leadership would be able to control the extremists in either party. Neither side seemed like they wanted to negotiate at all. Felt like chaos was our destiny, with either a default or a constitutional crisis on the horizon. But then President Biden and Speaker McCarthy came up with a pretty reasonable compromise. A temporary suspension of the debt ceiling with some modest caps on federal spending. A resolution that's way less contentious than what we got even in 2011. While the Labor report was terrific, I think it was this compromise between McCarthy and Biden that truly allowed us to roar on Friday. Why? Because now Fed Chief Jay Powell has an excuse to wait to see if we need more rate hikes. Thanks to the debt ceiling deal, student loan repayments are about to come back. We know that's important. And we're losing the pandemic-era boost to food stamps, something both Dollar General and Dollar Tree talked about. In short, a lot of people are about to take a sizable economic hit. So why does the Fed need to keep lowering the boom on us? They can just wait and see for a few months. Second, you can tell the debt ceiling deal has something to do with this because the Magnificent Seven, the big cap tech stocks that accounted for the entirety of the S&P 500's gains through the end of last month, no longer led the way on Friday. These stocks roared when we were worried about the debt ceiling. But of the seven, only Tesla outperformed on Friday. The best performing index wasn't the Nasdaq. It was the Dow Jones Industrial Average, up 2.12% in its second best day of the year. With the default fears off the table, maybe this is a market where the once mighty Dow can actually lead again. So let's take a look at the best performers in the Dow from Friday, because maybe that'll keep roaring in this suddenly changed environment, or at least you know what's driving this new leg of the rally, if, we, if it continues. So first is one that's been so down for so long, 3M. Uh, that ran because we heard that they might be reaching a settlement in their big, possibly cancer-causing ground contamination lawsuit. The trial just got postponed today to give them time to work out on a settlement deal. And it's looking like a settlement might be a, a cost that 3M can reasonably cover, not something that would bankrupt the company, as many of us were worried about. Anything to put some of this litigation to rest would be huge for 3M. The market took the trial delay negatively today, though, and the stock gave up 4.4%. I did not like that. Second, Caterpillar Ward 2. This is the one we own for the Travel Trust. Cat's been shadowboxing the bears all year. The last time they reported, the numbers were great, but a gaggle of analysts turned against it, and the stock's experience is sickening decline ever since, sinking all the way down to 206 on Thursday. Terrible. 
I think Wall Street just fundamentally misunderstands Caterpillar these days. People see it as an old-fashioned cyclical stock, but CEO Jim Mobley has done his best to diversify into businesses that are less hostage to the global economy, especially China. I believe Cat won't even be able to meet demand for its products next year because there'll be so many orders coming from all the big infrastructure spending that comes along the line. Now, at first, Cat roared on Friday from the short squeeze as we realized the debt default-induced recession was off the table. But it kept running thanks to the new China stimulus plan, as everybody thinks it's a China plan. Yet China represents less than 5% of Cat's current business. I have to hope that the real reasons take root soon because the bears will most likely come right back if we don't catch an upgrade or two with more of a rigorous analysis about what Cat's doing in this country. The stock's 1.84% loss today. Maybe feel positive, though, about last week's move. That's not all that much of, of a profit taking it for an 8.4% gain. Third, Dow, which is the old Dow chemical, genuinely benefited from China's stimulus package. Now, Asia only represents 18% of this chemical company's business, but that's not the way to look at it. So many chemicals have their price set by the Chinese market, given that China uses about 50% of them. Dow's policy is to make in China for China, which means they could get a real boost from this housing stimulus plan if it works. Doesn't hurt that Dow's stock is highly cyclical, and we're much less afraid of a worldwide recession. Like Cat, they've tried to make the business a lot less cyclical, but Wall Street just hasn't gotten the memo yet. Dow closed almost unchanged, though, so good sign. Fourth, when Macy's report on Thursday, it noted it had expanded its deal with Nike. And that was the first time in ages that I thought Nike had shown any signs of life. But like Caterpillar and Dow, Nike shot up 4% on Friday. Why? Yes, again, because of the Chinese stimulus package. People think it's real. I am very jaded when it comes to the Chinese government. But right now, Wall Street believes that for the moment, what matters is Nike's going to get, get some more money. Nike has big exposure to China, no doubt about it. It's one of those luxury goods plays that's fallen off a cliff since April, and now it's coming alive again. When these moves occur, Nike tends to have more staying power than Cat or Dow because it generally has a ton of business in China. It's not super economically sensitive. That said, if China's stimulus package fails, might take a month or two before we know for sure, then you have to expect the stock to give up its gains as it started to do today, falling 2.3%. Finally, probably the most intriguing one of all is American Express. It roared thanks to the strong travel and leisure figures from the Labor Department's non-farm payroll support. I could not believe how far the stock had fallen based on both worries about bad debts and a belief it must be near the end of the post-pandemic travel boom, which were not. Given the numbers emanating from the higher-end restaurant chains like Darden and Brinker or any of the hoteliers, especially Marriott, or from all the cruise lines and Airlines, the sell of American Express made zero sense to me. But just as we saw with Caterpillar, people have a preconceived notion of what American Express is lever to. And they don't want to confront the reality of the situation. Now, I do care, by the way, if the federal government changes the rules to force American Express to keep more cash on its balance sheet, something that was talked about in this morning's Wall Street Journal. But it's too early to tell exactly what's happening there. Small decline today tells me that there's still some real staying power to the American Express move. I trust it. The bottom line, Friday's rally was important, not just because it was a huge run, but because of its composition. Even when the Magnificent Seven take a breather after the tremendous gains, it turns out there are plenty of other potential winners that could power the next leg of the markets move higher. Or at least they can do that now that we've jumped the debt ceiling hurdle. Now we just need to know, figure out which of these new winners really does have staying power beyond just Friday. But remember, as I said at the top of the show, please don't be greedy. The biggest money in this leg of the bull market has already been made. Mid Money's back here for the break. Coming up, is five below a cut above? Kramer dives into a favorite discount retailer. Next. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match 
with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This past turning season, we have really had a ton of heinous quarters. Holy cow, the retailers are probably the worst. But there are exceptions. Exceptions like Five Below, discount chain that delivered a relatively strong set of numbers just last Thursday night. While the quarter wasn't perfect, it was enough to cause the stock to jump nearly 8% the next day. What really makes Five Below stand out, though, is that this is a chain where everything costs 5 bucks or less. Very similar to dollar stores. Yet both publicly traded dollar stores reported truly horrible numbers. Which makes Five Below's outperformance really all that more remarkable. House of pleasure. To put this in perspective, on May 25th, Dollar Tree posted a five-cent earnings bid with awful earnings guidance for the current quarter. And management cutting their full-year forecast practically across the board. Much weaker same-store sales, much weaker earnings. Dollar Tree blames shrink. That's a Wall Street speak term for theft, saying it accounted for the entire earnings business. And then some. But these guys have plenty of other problems, like margin erosion and ongoing store transformation plan that's taking way too long. I think it's backfiring. That's the reason why Dollar Tree lost 12% of its value in response. <laughs> then last Thursday morning, Dollar General reported an even worse quarter. The house of pain. With Dollar Tree, the problem is mostly guidance. With Dollar General, they're doing awful right now. With misses on every major line. Worse, management also cut their full year forecast across the board. Previously, they were looking for about 4 to 6% earnings growth. Now they're talking about 8% earnings shrinkage to flat at best. That is just simply horrific. Dollar General blamed its soft numbers on general economic weakness. It's kind of weird, right? When you expect the dollar stores to thrive when consumers are f- feeling stretched. In reality, it looks to me like Dollar General's losing market share in key categories, especially the grocery section. They've made a lot of money there. Walmart's eating their lunch now. They've also got an expensive remodeling uh, agenda that Wall Street no longer seems enamored of. It was so hideous that three separate analysts have downgraded the stock since then, and this stock lost nearly 20% of its value on Thursday. Sell, 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 sell. But then, not even a full day later, Five Below gives us something much more encouraging. Though their revenue and same-store sales came in a little light, they delivered a four-cent earnings beat off of a 63-cent basis. At the same time, management's guidance for the current quarter came in a tad light. For its full-year forecast, Five Below tightened its previously issued target ranges. Now, I know that may not sound all that super impressive, but come on, consider the competition. Dollar Tree's full-year earnings forecast dropped 9.5%. Dollar General down 8.6%. But Five Below's forecast is basically flat, actually up a couple of cents from the midpoint. And like I said before, Five Below's quarter made Wall Street feel a lot more enthusiastic about the future, in part because only Five Below was able to basically hold the line, stick to its previous guidance. But it also comes down to what we heard on a really magnificent conference call. 
Well, uh, theft torpedoed Dollar Tree's quarter. It's much less of a problem for Five Below. It's still an issue as the shoplifting epidemic hits nearly everybody in retail, but it's not a quarter-destroy issue for them. It's not hurting the company's gross margins meaningfully at all. When asked about the shrink factor in the cop school, CFO Kenneth Bull said, quote, we're not experiencing anything materially different than what we saw at the end of last year when we did a lot of our own physical inventories, end quote. At the same time, some of the other discount chains cited an unfavorable product mix to explain their weakness. And this is another area where Five Below has just a much better story to tell. These guys are able to quickly spot current trends and capitalize on them in a very big way. We saw this years ago when Five Below became the go-to spot for fidget spinners, which kind of came out of nowhere. We saw it more recently when Five Below became one of the leading purveyors of the indescribably popular Squishmallow post toys, which, by the way, are still selling very well. But the story of this quarter was Super Mario. When the Super Mario Brothers movie was a hit in April, Five Below sold tons of T-shirts, posters, and other related merchandise. They're very good at targeting young children. This is one of the few contexts where that's actually something positive. Finally, there's a striking difference in the way that Five Below talks about its footprint and its expansion plans. Both Dollar Tree and Dollar General have expensive and drawn-out store refreshment plans, which, by the way, are very necessary because some of these stores are truly hideous, especially the locations Dollar Tree picked up when it bought Five Do- Family Dollar, which is the same because the original Dollar Tree stores are actually pretty good-looking. Five Below, meanwhile, isn't really focusing on rehabbing unattractive or underperforming stores. They're focused solely on expansion. The company's overarching strategic plan is dubbed the triple-double strategy. And it's very straightforward. Five Below wants to triple its store count from a base of 1,200 stores to more than 3,500 stores by the end of the decade. It also expects to double its uh, sales. It sounds good to me. The specific goal for this year is for Five Below to put up 200 new stores, which would be a record for them. And they reiterate that goal even as they only put up 27 the first quarter. Management thinks they can accelerate their expansion dramatically as they take over leases from the retailers that have gone bankrupt. They're really the only ones who are doing this. Thank you, Tuesday morning, a bankrupt retailer. In fact, CEO Joel Anderson says they can probably exceed that 200 number. If they can have more than 200 stores, that's going to become the popular favorite for the rest of the year. While Five Below is also doing some renovations at its existing stores, that's very different from Dollar Tree and Dollar General, which are refreshing their worst stores because they have no choice. They're on defense. Five Below is playing offense. They're adding new sections toward the back of the stores with items priced above five bucks. That's called Five Beyond. They did 250 of these conversions in the first quarter, and they're uh, well on the way of doing 400 uh, conversions for the full year. Longer term, they want to roll out this new format everywhere. I like it. Really smart way to account for inflation without breaking the fundamental commitment to selling items at five bucks or less. So here's the bottom line. Even if Five Below didn't have a truly blowout first quarter, it's good that this company's in a much better position than its discount retail peers. Five Below's got to throw a long-term game plan allowing this regional, Philadelphia-based wonder go national in a methodical, rigorous way. That's why Five Below's now on fire, and I think the stock's got a lot more room to run. Let's go to Jerry in Missouri, please. Jerry. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course, Joe. What's up? This e-commerce stock is using artificial intelligence and is down 66%. It's trading at 12.5 times sales. You interviewed Harvey Finkelstein, if I say that right, last month. This morning, it was highlighted by the Motley Fool as one of their buy now and hold forever stocks. You think that Shopify is going to live up to all this hype? Well, stocks had a 72% move from the bottom. But I've been a fan of Shopify for years and years and years, and I think it will. Uh, Shopify is the Amazon for the small guy. And I think there's plenty of room for the small guy. And I'm glad you brought the stock up. I like it very much. Michael in New York. Michael. How's it going, Kramer? First time caller, long time sporadic buyer. Excellent. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts on Sprat's Farmers Market were. I think they're a great stock. and holding them for a little over a year now. 
think they have a great business model. Um, they're trendy. They keep their produce right in the front and center of their stores. Um, I think they're doing good stuff, but it's a time to buy more, sell, or hold. You know, I'm glad you brought it up. I was thinking about doing a piece about the sprouts. The reason why I held off is because I'm worried about food inflation. But you know what? These guys are pretty darn good at what they do. It's pulled back nicely, sells at 12 times earnings. I think you've got a good one. I am with you. Our viewers are so smart. Bye, bye, bye. All right. Five below is playing offense, while other discount retailers are playing defense. That's why I think the stock's got a lot more room to run. You really should consider five. Now, much more man money, including my was with another winner, Trade Desk. The ad market has become increasingly more digitized, and I'm hearing how the Trade Desk is leading the charge with the company's top brands. Then we keep hearing about how strong the consumer is, but is it true? I'm sharing the data I've been watching to get a sense of how the consumer is really doing, and it's better than everybody else's. And, of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. pandemic further behind us and inflation cooling, we can finally go back to searching for powerful secular growth themes that in ordinary times tend to give us big gains. Take the gradual shift of advertising dollars from traditional media to digital media to connected media. Other than the big tech titans, few companies have benefited as much from this shift as a company called The Trade Desk, which runs a virtual marketplace connecting advertisers with available pieces of digital real estate. The trade desk caught fire during the pandemic, then endured a painful pullback last year, like so many other growth names. But this year, the stock's come roaring back. It's up a stunning 68% for 2023. Now, tomorrow, the trade desk making a major announcement. They're launching something called Kokai. That's a new media buying platform that will incorporate major advances in AI, measurement, and partner integration. Could be a big game changer for them and for you if you watch Connected TV. So before the big public launch, let's hear the pitch directly from Jeff Green, the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Trade Desk, to learn more about it. Mr. Green, welcome back to Mad Money. Uh, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Well, Jeff, last time we saw you, Apple just put through some privacy rules. A lot of people felt it was going to shut down a market entirely. You said, no, that won't, and that you had a solution that would be very good for the user. Exactly. So, uh... Basically, what happened is Apple reduced its signal that it's providing so that people can provide tailored ads in the Apple ecosystem. And what us and companies like Facebook did is they uh, innovated to basically use technology to make it so that we can do that in a new way. So we're still providing tailored ads in that environment and in other environments where consumers get things that are highly relevant. They're more uh, productive or efficient for advertisers, and everybody wins. Well, now you've got a new product that's very exciting. I want you to tell us about it, because you have been the originator. At all times, you have been the advocate for both the viewer and the person who wants to put the ad out there. So tell us about what this new, uh, your new program does. Yeah, so tomorrow we're launching a product called Kokai, and Kokai is Japanese for open waters or open for business. And essentially what we're doing is something that actually I think is the very best thing that Apple has in its entire ecosystem, which is its app marketplace, where people can develop to its products. We want to make it so that many other companies can develop to us, but we're also trying to upgrade our product across the board. So it's a little bit like shipping a new operating system at the same time as launching an app marketplace where people can develop to us. All right, so That's what, aver- what advertiser would like to take advantage of this, you think? Sorry, say that. Who would take advantage of this? Uh, so, well, first, anybody who's selling into advertisers and agencies right. can build to us. So if you're an AI company that is generating creatives on behalf of advertisers, you can build to us in our, in, in, in our APIs. Uh, uh, if you're a data company who's trying to sell more data, 
If you're trying to make it possible for people to connect the dots between what they're selling offline to online, those are companies that can connect with us. And then simultaneously, we're taking AI and injecting it throughout our product, and then we're creating a new user interface at the same time. So it's an overhaul. Biggest upgrade we've ever done in our company. Wow! History. I mean, do you have enough interest? Are you concerned? This is a big. The stock has has been roaring. You think some of it's anticipation, or are you recognize this is going to be a tough moment? Uh, it's possible some people are anticipating what we're about to ship, but we have a tremendous amount of confidence in what we're shipping. Many of the products have already been in betas or have been being run for months behind the scenes. So we know that it's going to work. We're just excited to explain it. Really, the burden at this point is explaining all the complexity in our platform, because what we're trying to do is give the biggest advertisers in the world really powerful solutions, and sometimes those are complicated. Now, one of the things that's really exciting about all your stuff is you are well ahead in connected TV. Now, connected TV eludes people, but it's actually what they're watching all the time, right? Yes. Yeah, connected TV is, I think, the biggest opportunity that we've ever seen in advertising and probably ever will. And that's largely because, and it's partly because of the pandemic, because uh, uh, what happened was people were staying home and streaming, and they were taking more content in than they ever had before. But it also created some pressure on the content companies, yes. uh, where everybody was fighting over subscription wars or streaming wars, as they were calling them, so that uh, uh, I want to get my 1995 uh, uh, as a content company from the consumer, but so did 10 other companies. So a lot of them, including even Netflix, introduced ads, and so almost all of them have ads. So the opportunity to provide relevant ads and lower the ad load, so how many ads you see in an hour, you get much fewer of those on connected television than you do in linear television. And then they also can apply data using a platform like ours to make those ads more relevant. So when you put all that together, it's better for the consumer, fewer right. ads, more relevant. Better for the advertiser, more effective because you're using data and only putting them in front of the people that really want your product. Better for the content owners because their, their CPMs go up or the amount they get per ad. Everybody wins in that environment. And with those win-wins, the trade desk in the middle of all that making it happen, it's the best thing that ever happened. Now, I want to be careful about in the middle of so people understand. That's different from how Google is in the middle of, of advertising, yeah. right? You might just mention that because I want people to know that you're my go-to guy to understand exactly what Jonathan Canner, who's the antitrust czar in our country, is saying we need more transparency. Yeah, if you, if you read the complaint that the government has made against Google, it's pretty damning. Uh, and essentially what they're saying is that Google's playing both sides. Right. And they're, they're representing buyers and sellers. And as I've said, they're judge, they're jury, they're defense, they're prosecution, they're the bailiff, they're the warden, they're all of it. What we've tried to do is just represent one side of the, of the trial, if you will. We're trying to represent the buyer and get them the very best price possible. And by aligning our interests with the buy side, we think that we make it easy to be a partner to them. And it's interesting because then it has trickle-down effects throughout the ecosystem because everybody knows who we are and what we represent. And it makes it easier for them even to interact with us simply because we say we're with the buyer, we're with the advertiser. Well, it's clear the government just says, listen, be like trade desk. Pick one side or the other. Yeah, I think that's what they should do. Right. That's better for the ecosystem, but it's difficult to do when you're in the middle of it. Well, you own the corporate. You're the honest broker. I know that. And uh, we all benefit. Uh, everybody, from the people who write to the people who watch because of what Trade Desk does. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's Jeff Green, co-founder, chairman, CEO of the Trade Desk. You should read their documents. What they do is very exciting. And by the way, all written in a way that you can understand. And it's because if you watch anything, you'll know. Man Money's back after the break. Coming up. 
What's in your mind, Kramerica? Give us a call. The lightning round is storming the NYSE. Next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Let's start with Dave in Illinois. Dave. Dr. Kramer, my adorable lunatic friend, how are you? Uh, more lunatic than ever, and I appreciate that comment. What's going on, Dave? Jim, last month in the lightning round, you waived your does not make money rule on the stock. It recently recovered from all of its one day 17% loss some 11 days ago. Jim, this stock is no flake. Please share your thoughts on SNOW. I have to tell you, I am concerned about Snowflake because Frank Slootman told me very directly at our CNBC CEO Investment Council when I interviewed him that he was not happy with his own quarter. Now that the stock has come all the way back up, I think you have to take a little profit, Dave. It concerns me if the CEO says don't buy, basically, while I was trying to get him to buy and it goes back up. I'm wrong. He's right. Let's go to Tyler in California, please. Tyler. Big Booyah from California. How you doing, Jim? All right. I like a familiar Booyah. What's going on with you? Uh, I'm doing good. Thank you. Um, I wanted to say that I've been a longtime listener. I've been listening to you since Real Money. Uh, oh, my. Madison. My radio show. Holy cow. What a, that one dates me. Thank you for listening to that. Appreciate it. And, and uh, I love the street.com. A, a, a great website. Yeah, well, yeah, um, I started in 96. And look, it, I just have a good legacy to feel about it. What's <laughs> up? Uh, so I wanted to uh, uh, let you know this is my 21st call. So lucky 21. I wanted to ask about Taiwan Semi TSM. All right, good luck. I think Taiwan Semi is a very good stock. I wish it would pull back a little bit. Obviously, that uh, the semiconductor or chips act in this country has made it so that we're trying to be less dependent. It'll take many, many years. And Taiwan Semi is a very good company in a democracy that we need to defend. So happy 21. Let's go to Ray in New York. Ray. Booyah, Jim. This is Ray from Upstate New York. All right, Ray, what's happening? Well, my stock has to do with the growing season, which is going full score right now. It would be Scott's miracle growth. You know something, Ray, i got to tell you. As a gardener, I myself am concerned on the week-to-week nature of gardening this year, and I just can't get excited about the season. I'm excited about my garden, obviously, hey. but I just think it's just way too hit or miss. I'm going to have to say no to, Smith, to, uh, to, to Scott's. Let's go to Leo in Connecticut. Leo. Booyah, Jim. Leo calling from Middletown, Connecticut. How you wow. doing? I said, you're real good, man. What's going on? I'm good. Okay, so I bought up Brazilian Airlines uh, Azul at 4.8 and again at 6. Wow. They control, they control about a third of Brazil's passenger market share. I sold half my stake to lock in some gains at 11. Would you hold the rest or take you, your game? You were playing with the house's money, let it run. I can't believe it. Well, that stock's done. It's probably the best. It's probably the best. Airline in the world, well done, well played. Luke in California, Luke. Jim, Luke Nelson, San Diego. Big fan of the show, Jim. Big fan of the show. Thank you. What's happening? Talk I'm asking about today is uh, Palantir Technology. I think what Palantir is one of the best quarters. I uh, had disliked the company for a very long time. Stock has been climbing up ever since that quarter. It's deservedly so as they got a lot of good government business. Let's go to Steve in California. Steve. Jim, let me thank you for literally a Palo Alto. Giving uh, me into oil stocks early That was enough. a good one. Good for the club. Thank you. And keeping me in Apple and NVIDIA when times were tough. 
Thank you. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts regarding Allison Transmission Holdings? Very straightforward company. I know the company. It does very well. I think it's a uh, that area of, of, of the, let's say, the original equipment makers for trucks is really strong. My friend Stephanie Link had a very good piece today about the truck numbers. It is really, really red hot market. I like Caterpillar. That's the way to play it. Let's go to Michael in New York. Michael. Jim, how are you feeling? I'm feeling I made a little comeback. You know, I'm still trying to take my vocal cords. Trying to figure out what's the matter with them. I don't like the fact that twice in uh, two months has happened. I'm looking into it, and I thank you for asking. What's going on? All right, good. I'm looking at a stock called HLT, Hilton Worldwide Holdings. I think they're very well run. I think Marriott and Hilton are both well run. I think that's a good stock. International travel holds up. I think you got to keep her. Let's go to Randy in Pennsylvania. Randy. Jim, booyah. Thank you again for having me on your show. I want to invite you to our sports talk here at Horsham. Fly Eagles Fly, and I want to let you know this is the best time of my life to talk oh, to you. Wow. I, you know, I'm going to talk to Jeff Morris. Maybe we get that thing working out. What's going on? Now, I also want to let you know a special gift coming to you. I can't tell you what it is, but a special gift coming. I'll take it. I always like gifts. That gift. Now, I'm going to tell you about the stock. It used to be called Aqua America. It's now Essential. I've had it. It's a long-term investment. Well, well you probably had investment. it with Suburban Water, right? Did you have it with Suburban Water in Monaco? Anyway, that, that's a, um, it's a really solid company. It's come down a great deal. I've never seen it yield this close to 3%. I want to buy that stock. I want to buy it aggressively. Very, very good call, and I hope I get a nice gift. That'd be terrific. Let's go to Michael in Arizona. Michael. Hey, how you doing there? I am doing well, Michael. How about you? I'm good. Hey, um, I'm calling today about a stock. Um, the ticket symbol is IOT, uh, Sam Sarah. Yeah, that one and of the best. That may be one of the greatest untold uh, software enterprise companies there is. It's a really great stock. I wish I had caught it earlier. I hope it pulls back. I think it's worth talking about. Let's go to Frank in New York. Frank. Yeah, hi, Jimmy. Love your What's show. Up? Thank you, Frank. Uh, my call is about Rivian Automotive Inc., the electric car. Losing too much money. I'm going to give you a twofer. I want you to sell that one, and I want you to sell Lucy. We don't need money losers and mad money. Sell. I to protect people from these companies. Let's go to Carrie in New Mexico. Carrie. Hey, Mr. Kramer, long-time Carrie. listener. Excellent. Um, yeah, I'd like to compliment your, your, your daughter for coining the term Jimmy Chill. I love it. <laughs> Anyways, I'm called about Intel. Intel has some uh, sampling some in, uh, enterprise servers, the uh, uh, CPUs, uh, Xeon chips that are uh, claiming they are outperforming AMD. I just want to get your take on no, Intel. No, no, they're not. Now, Intel's selling a big slug of Mobileye. Maybe that'll help shore up their balance sheet. That's about the best thing I can say about Intel. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up. Is Jay Powell too cool for school? Kramer says hip, hip, hooray for the Fed chair with an important caveat next. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. 
Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Generative AI will be able to basically mimic not just my voice, but the way I think in some way. Well, Take all your, your think of all the words. Nobody said more words than you have on television oh, that yeah. have been recorded. The, model, literally the, the hold, algo has you figured I, out. You hold the record. I learned Joe's proposition because I spoke much. You hold the record for words on TV. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. Jim Kramer, the diehard of the dollar. Hey, Jimmy, love the show. My five-year-old grandson loves to watch your show. I have to thank you for making us money when it's there to be made. Our world is a better place with you in it. We keep hearing about how strong the consumer is, except for the consumer. Last week, we had a parade of data about how the consumer is doing. And the answer is, aside from international travel, I would say not so hot. I think we're back to a world where we have two kinds of consumer. The ones who save money during the pandemic and the ones who are more on the defensive, trying to make ends meet again. Now that all the government assistance is going away. Now, we got a real jumble in retail. For example, Macy's just reported a strong quarter that got weaker throughout the quarter. Nordstrom's quarter, on the other hand, was a weak quarter that got stronger throughout the quarter. Dollar General had a horrendous quarter filled with worries about the end of government programs. Today we had research, firms from, uh, research from several firms about how the end of the student loan repayment moratorium could hit millions of consumers who seem to shop inordinately at Target. Meanwhile, there's definitive evidence that spending's been robust at charitable trust named Costco and at Walmart. Both of these are examples of places to get cheaper brands and less expensive food, both of which have seen inflation subside rather dramatically. In short, a handful of retailers are doing well, but more struggling, which to me seems a lot like the consumer right now. If you really want to get a read on the consumer, though, you need aggregate data. And for that, I go to Bank of America, which has data on 68 million consumers. According to Bank of America, these people have 40% more savings on average than before COVID. That amount's come down a bit from its highs, but balances still remain elevated versus pre-COVID numbers. Very positive. The data shows the spending still strong, but it's slowing. We're going back to normal levels from before the pandemic, although with a reminder, 2019 was a pretty great year. Credit quality remains very high. Delinquencies are very low, despite what you read in the papers, even as they're gradually on the rise again. I know that my thesis of people being long on money and short on time still seems to be playing out, something Bank of America calls the revenge travel. International still strong, domestic slowing. Why does all this matter? Okay, quite simple, because we are in a Fed-obsessed moment in time. We're always seem to care about is what the Fed will do, not what you and I will do. Even as I said at the top of the show, the Fed had very little to do with the strength of Magnificent Seven, which created their own fate. But this retail data collect- collectively shows that spending is slowing, even if it's not enough on its own to make the Fed halt its rate hikes for good. It might be enough to make them skip meetings. Wouldn't it be something if they skipped a hike and then skipped a second hike? I don't know if they'll do that. I know there are people who believe the economy is so weak that the Fed will soon have to cut interest rates. I think they're just wrong. I find that whole analysis ill-advised, even borderline insane. How can there be a concern that we need to cut rates when all this happens is that we've almost back to the robust year of 2019? That said, the Fed's playing for time and it's winning. The final federal benefits are winding down. We'll have a lot of stimulus money coming for infrastructure next year, but I don't see that having a huge impact on the consumer side. What matters, though, is that all the naysayers just don't see what's coming together. And that's the soft landing. For instance, I see cars in abundance, rates going higher for them, so that'll be a push. I see housing still intransigent in price, but not if people simply stay in one place. And housing should get substantially weaker once millennials have to pay their student loans again. Of course, none of this matters to the worry warts who want to disparage the Fed and fan the flames of declining inflation. Believe me, we wouldn't have had such a big run from the bottom if we were having a hard landing. 
I know there's a tendency among all these big-time money managers, these rich people, to come on and say, Jay Powell's kept things too easy. I think that's just silly. Powell's more than made up for his earlier reluctance to tighten. What he couldn't foresee was how much Congress would spend on infrastructure or that our wave of COVID would end more quickly than others. I say the Powell's piled us to be the strongest economy in the world right now. One that has passed China definitively, which truly didn't do enough for stimulus. And Europe, which never seems to catch a break. I say two cheers for Jay Powell and be glad we have him, even if he turns out to be a, a dead and company follower, indicating that maybe he's not as uncool as I like my central bankers to be. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you to find it just for you right here on Buddy. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Kramer on this podcast are solely Kramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Kramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Kramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Kramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Mad Money Disclaimer. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.